I'm going to be reading from Matthew 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus said to them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? When then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You may be seated. Quick uh, update and a prayer request before we dive in. The elders are meeting this week to uh, talk about a number of things, probably the main of which is what it looks like to reopen all the ministries of Orlando Grace Church in 2021. Uh, When you look at what all that means with community groups and formation groups and adult education and child education now in two services, it's a lot. (laughs) And then you factor in the backlog of people. We have a lot of new people who have come and and what it looks like to plug them in in new groups. There's just a lot to consider. So our hope is at Family Night to be able to present you uh, with what reopening in 2021 looks like. And we ask for your prayers and wisdom with all the little moving pieces in that process. Now we, uh, we can turn to Matthew chapter 11. We are continuing our walk through Matthew as we, we do. We pick it up every January 1. We take it to Easter and then wherever we end off, next January we pick it back up. This is our third year to walk through uh, Matthew. We're in chapter 11. Our series is named Gentle and Lowly. Obviously, this is taken from the book that we've been reading as a church. And incidentally, next week, I will be teaching the passage that the whole book was written from. So I'm looking forward to and a little, uh, little intimidated to teach that passage after you've been reading a whole book on that passage. But today, we get to this pretty famous story about John the Baptist. He is in prison and he sends Jesus a message. And the question in this message is in verse three. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one? 
the one that I think you are, the one that I hope you are, the one that I want you to be. Is this you or do I need to be waiting for somebody else? So this is a passage about doubt. John the Baptist from prison is asking, are you the Messiah that we all want you to be? And when I say doubt, I want to be quick to differentiate between doubt and unbelief. I don't think that John the Baptist was an unbeliever. I think he was a believer who was struggling with doubt. He didn't understand all that Jesus wanted him to understand. So we can place doubt somewhere between faith and unbelief because there's a big difference between say the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were full of unbelief and the man in Mark 9 that said, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. This is unbelief, this is doubting. And when Christians doubt, we don't wanna feel like second-class citizens. We don't wanna feel shame in our doubt, but we don't wanna stay in our doubt. I mean, while doubt isn't going to sink our ship, it can really weigh us down. And I've heard some very well-meaning people give horrible uh, answers to questions of doubts, I, uh, you know, Sunday school teachers and, and parents and even pastors who, when someone comes to them and confesses doubt, they'll give them answers that make them feel shame, make them feel like second-class citizens. And that's not at all what we have in this passage. In this passage, we have John the Baptist who confesses his doubt and does what all of us should do in our doubt. He takes it to Jesus. And so we're going to walk through this passage and we are going to see what it is that John is doubting. We're going to see Jesus' response to that doubt. And then lastly, we're going to see Jesus talk about the cure for all doubt. So first, what is John's doubt? I really, I think I should probably say right off the bat that theologians like Augustine, Chrysostom, uh, Calvin, and Luther all disagree with me. That, that John is doubting. And so I, I, don't, I don't wade into this lightly. They make the argument that John isn't doubting. He's asking a question for the benefit of everybody. So the crowd would hear the answer to this question. Who are you the one? The problem I have with that is that's not what Matthew says. Matthew says, this is John's question. And probably as, as that message goes from the prison out, uh, out to Jesus, people are hearing that John is asking this question, which necessitates Jesus addressing everybody. But it, to me, it seems really clear. This is John's question, and we can't be afraid to allow our heroes to have flaws. Try and find a hero of any kind that has no flaw in real life. It's hard to find. It's okay that somebody like John the Baptist had doubt. So what is it that John was doubting? I think we have three categories of doubt here. First, you have this category of experiential doubt. John's experience was hard. He was in prison. He was not just in any prison. Herod had put him in this prison, which is essentially a fortress called Machaerus. It was five miles to the east of the Jordan River. Um, obviously, he was able in some way to have interaction with people or he wouldn't have been able to send this message. But everything you read about this fortress makes you feel like it's, it's something just short of an ancient Near East version of being shipped to Siberia. I mean, this was a desolate place. He would have been lonely. He would have felt sidelined in his ministry. I think it's possible he didn't see a way out of his predicament. And so when you get into this kind of an experience, then it's it's an easy catalyst for doubt. This is hard. I don't understand why I'm here. God, what are you doing with me? And and especially if if you stay in this immediate context, you have John the Baptist who has given everything to God. He's put everything on the line. He's been as faithful as he knows how to be, yet he finds himself in prison. And that begins, that has to begin to create some sense of doubt. Angela and I have a dear friend who 
who gave me permission to tell the story. She, she was a missionary. She, she, she devoted about a decade of her life to, to go after one of the most dangerous people groups in the world. This people group was one of the most prolific producers of terrorists in the whole world. And so she was one of three Westerners at one time that even spoke the language fluently of this people group. And she was a part of a, a project to bring the Bible, at least the New Testament, to this people group for the very first time. And these people hated her for this. She was abused. She was attacked. Her house was targeted to be bombed. And so it got to the point where she had to come home. She devoted a decade of her life to this ministry and she returned with no fruit, did not ever see a single convert. And she came back with physical and emotional wounds that she will probably be dealing with the rest of her life. That is a reasonable kind of hard experience to really doubt. It doesn't mean she's not a believer. We've talked with her about her doubts. I, I believe, I just don't understand. And I want God to help me in my unbelief. I want God to help me understand what it is he wants to teach me through this because it just doesn't make sense right now. So that's experiential doubt. Then we have emotional doubt. I have every reason to believe that John was emotionally spent. And I think it, I think it's interesting that Jesus compares John to Elijah. And we're going to look at why he does that. Because Elijah and John have a lot of overlapping ministries. <laughs> if you think about Elijah, he went to call out King Ahab and Queen Jezebel on their sin. And what was John, why is John the Baptist in prison? He went to call out Herod and Herodias on their sin. And Elijah was so emotionally spent from that interaction that scripture says he went out into the desert and wanted to die. So why would we not have reason to think that John would be in the same kind of emotional state? When we are emotionally drained, that is very fertile ground for doubt. And when we experience these first two types of doubt, whether it's experiential or emotional, it's a very easy place to experience what we call divine hiddenness. It is what it sounds like. It feels like the divine is hidden from me. Where are you, Lord? I mean, this is, this is King David in the, in the wilderness yelling, where are you, God? And there's a fine line between interacting with God in a very honest way. I'm frustrated with you. I believe in you, but I'm, I'm upset. I want answers. That is a, that is a healthy category that we get in, in, in scripture. But there's a line between that and really doubting. And according to Oz Guinness, that line is crossed when we were afraid to believe what we want to believe and we fail to believe what we need to believe. And then thirdly, we have intellectual doubt. Jesus was not doing what John the Baptist intellectually thought he was supposed to do. So to see this, let's go back to Matthew chapter three, where, where John the Baptist is prophesying who Jesus is and what he would do. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And here's the important part. His winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe will, be burn, will burn with unquenchable fire. Does that sound like Jesus's earthly ministry? Jesus with this winnowing fork, cutting evil down like, like wheat and burning it in an unquenchable fire. That doesn't sound like Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus, 
Jesus is healing, he's teaching, he's, his following is growing. But John is saying, Jesus, he's prophesying, Jesus will bring judgment, he will bring justice, he will make everything that's wrong right in the world. And if Jesus is who he is, if he's here to bring justice to all the injustices in the world, then John is sitting over here wondering, why am I in prison? Why have you not done this yet? This is a part of what you were supposed to do. We know this from scripture. I prophesied it, but there is no judgment and there is no justice. Are you the one? Now, I don't think he would have said it with that tone. I think he would have felt it with that passion. I I, I sense John saying very respectfully, Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one I thought you were? Are you the one I hope you are? Are you the one I think you are? Or have I just really missed the mark and do we do we wait for another? And I think Matthew, if there's any doubt that this is about John's doubt, <laughs> Matthew seems to almost be highlighting the irony of asking Jesus, are you the one? When he, he said, John heard these things about the Christ. Right, Christ is a title. It's not his last name, the anointed one. And this isn't a term that's even popped up really yet in, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's inserting it here to say, John's asking this question, are you one to who? The Christ. And we have to also remember that, that right after these, this prophecy by John the Baptist in chapter three, John gets to see and hear some pretty extraordinary things. I mean, John gets to see the spirit descend on Jesus. He gets to hear the father say audibly in a booming voice, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So imagine the cognitive dissonance here between in John the Baptist, what he's seen and what he's experiencing now over in this prism. That cognitive dissonance is there even though he saw things that we'll never see, probably. Well, we'll never see Jesus baptized. We won't. <laughs> And so there are lots of ways I think that we can hit the same sort of intellectual doubt, you know, especially in the age of science. And I really believe there is the natural and there is the supernatural. And at the end of time, they're all going to, everything's going to make sense to us. The problem is we don't know everything there is about the natural and we don't know everything there is about the supernatural. And so really that gets to the core of doubt is that we do not have the ability to see the full picture. And so we need to understand how it is that we navigate not knowing everything there is about the natural and not knowing everything there is about the supernatural. I have a friend who, when he was a boy in Sunday school, he asked a Sunday school teacher about dinosaur bones and said, well, we've got all these dinosaur bones we're discovering and the Bible doesn't really talk about dinosaurs. So what do I do with that? And that's, a, that's like a fifth grader's version of doubt. And the Sunday school teacher said, well, I'll tell you what's going on. Satan has scattered those bones to deceive us. And Maybe technically that's an option, but that's not ultimately helpful for this boy. What is helpful is when we say, I don't know. We don't know everything there is about the natural and we're not told everything there is about the supernatural. We know what we need to know, but we don't know everything and that's okay. Maybe here are four or five options and we'll know when we get to heaven. That's okay. It's an okay place to minister to people and their doubts. So whatever category of doubt you're experiencing. Jesus' desire is for you to do the same thing that John the Baptist did. Bring that doubt to him. And I know some of you have experienced heartbreaking trauma. You've experienced unimaginable abuse. Some of you have experienced loss. 
that is so significant like Elijah, you just want to give up on life. And if that's you, I want you to hear me say there is a real chance that pain and doubt will never leave you in this life. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't have a path for healing for you in this life and definitely in the next. Jesus' hope is that we will bring our anguish and our pain and our doubt to him and he will walk with us. He will love us. He will comfort us. And as he does so, we will know him better and be more conformed into his image. And I think one of the great tragedies of our culture today, we're not an atheistic society. We're a spiritualistic society that, that puts together this a la carte version of, of some usually version of Christianity. There may be some sort of Jesus in there, but really that Jesus is just a Jesus that we've conformed into our own image because we want to be the kings and queens of our own life. And the problem with that Jesus is that when things really get hard and we really start doubting, he has nothing to offer us. Only the real Jesus does. And so now we get to see Jesus's response to John's bringing his doubt to Jesus. Let's look again at verses four through six. And Jesus answered them, go and tell, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what is Jesus saying? He's quoting at least two parts of Isaiah, Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 35. Now Isaiah 61 is a clear, uh, is a clear prophecy of the Messiah. It's a messianic prophecy. Chapter 35, uh, it, it, isn't, it doesn't have a, messian, a specific messianic figure, but it is a chapter describing the, the, the return of God's people to Zion and all the accompanying covenant blessings of that return. So here are the prophecies of what the Messiah would do. Then, this is from Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And now Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the heart the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is saying, I'm doing what Isaiah said I would do. The blind, he said the blind would see and they have. He said the lame would walk and they do. He said the lepers would be cleansed and they are. He said the deaf would hear and they can. He said the good news would be delivered to the poor and it has been. But what's missing from his answer? Judgment. And it isn't because judgment isn't in Isaiah. Judgment is the immediate context of all the verses that, that Jesus is citing. And so it feels like, Jesus, do you know the Old Testament? <laughs> like, do you know what I prophesied about you? And Jesus seems to clearly be saying, I know exactly what you're talking about. And you need to be okay that all the blessings of the kingdom have entered the world, but in my sovereign grace, I'm delaying the judgment. It'll come, but the blessings come now. And John, you need to be okay with that. That's why he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who trusts that Jesus has this. Blessed is the one that's okay. It's not on our time frame because again, all of our doubt comes from just not understanding all the pieces of the puzzle. 
But it's really important to see who Jesus is saying this to. Obviously, primarily John the Baptist as a believer. So secondary, this is a call for all of us believers to continually re-examine our faith. Are we following the true biblical Jesus or are there ways that we have conformed him into our image in some way and what can we repent of and how can we turn to the true real Jesus? I mean, that's what's going on here in the context of, of John the Baptist. Because Anything other than the true Jesus will let you down and will leave you wallowing in shame in all of your doubts. Jesus does not condemn John in his doubts any more than God condemned Elijah in his breakdown. Jesus' tone, it isn't condescending, it's, it's pastoral, it's fatherly. It was good that you sent me this request. It's good that you confess your doubt and you bring your doubt, John the Baptist, to Jesus. And Jesus is helping John, helping John to better understand who Jesus is. And as that happens, the doubt begins to be healed. I I couldn't say on John's part if it was perfectly healed or not, but it begins to be healed as John is more and more conformed into the image of Jesus and his faith is more and more in line with the faith that God has, has decreed that we would have. So then lastly, we don't just get to hear Jesus's response to John. Jesus in verse seven begins to talk to the whole crowd and he tells the whole crowd the ultimate cure for this doubt. And I think this is where it gets really interesting. So for the rest of the passage, Jesus is speaking publicly about John the Baptist. Again, I think, I, I imagine this letter coming from, from the fortress, from the prison, and it, and it doesn't seem sealed and you know, closed. I think they saw the message and people were saying, this is from, from John the Baptist. He's the greatest herald, the greatest outspoken champion of Jesus that we know. He's doubting, he's asking, are you the one? And in my mind, the crowd's growing as this letter arrives to Jesus. And so Jesus has to make this public declaration. So now Jesus, who John has been bearing witness to, is born witness to by Jesus. So you have a reversal of roles. Verse seven, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness and see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are kings and houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus is making these comparisons. The, there were these, these big areas of grass, like cane reed type of grass all around the Jordan River that would sway whichever direction the wind is going. And, and Jesus is using that grass as a comparison to a fickle person, someone who's just, just tossed to and fro by whatever the culture, the peers are saying. And he's asking, is that who you saw in John the Baptist? And the answer is absolutely not. And then he describes, did you see someone in soft clothing? Soft clothing means wealthy and it it, it comes with this connotation of undisciplined and weak. And he said, is that how you saw John the Baptist? Absolutely not. And then there's this awesome, not so subtle dig to Herod who has imprisoned John. Soft people are what you see in king's houses. But that is not John the Baptist. John is a prophet and he's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But I, I wanna pause. I say, I love the way, the way that Jesus ministers to John. 
John brings him his doubt and his questions and Jesus answers his questions. He ministers to him. And then in front of all the people, he justifies John the Baptist. And in that, you get this little microcosm of the way that Jesus interacts with all of us. We bring him our pain and our anguish and our sin and our doubt. He ministers to us and then he stands up in front of all the world at one point and God the Father now, and he justifies us. I mean, he's, he's looking at John and he's saying, this one is mine. I claim him. No one can say otherwise. He's mine. I will never leave him or forsake him. He is mine. Even in his doubting, he's mine. I've got him. And Jesus is saying this in maybe John's greatest moment of existential crisis. In, in John's doubt, like, was I wrong about all that I thought and wanted in Jesus Christ? And Jesus justifies him publicly, not because John merits it, but simply because he believes. This is essentially what we're reading as a church right now in Gentle and Lowly. Jesus doesn't come for the healthy. He doesn't come for the righteous. Who does he come for? He comes for the broken. He comes for the downtrodden. He comes for the weary and he comes for the doubting. So how is it then that John is greater than all the prophets? It's a pretty bold claim. John is greater than all the prophets. I have to even go back a little bit and just imagine the excitement when John showed up on the scene. I mean, Israel has not had a prophet in about 400 years. There's been no one speaking to the people, calling them to repent on behalf of, directly on behalf of God himself. And then here you have John and his message is justified by the Holy Spirit and God the Father speaking and all these amazing things are happening around the one who he prophesied about. But John isn't just a prophet. He's more than a prophet because he's not just speaking warnings and calling for repentance in God's people. He's also the very fulfillment of prophecy himself. You may remember in Malachi 3.1, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Here's the prophet, prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And what is it that Jesus is saying about John? This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is saying, John isn't just a prophet. He's the, ful- he's the fulfillment of prophecy as well. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until, and that word until means up to and including John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. John the Baptist is the one that would herald in the day of the Messiah. And here's why that's important. All of you are doubting that John is who he is. You're you're wondering, is he some second rate uh, prophet because he's doubting maybe what it is that he prophesied? Jesus is doubling down. No, he is not only a prophet of God, but he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of God. And that's important because if that is who John is, if he's the next Elijah, then Jesus is the Christ. This isn't a story about John the Baptist. This is a story about Jesus Christ. The story is bigger than John the Baptist. Jesus is saying all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets up to and including John, all of them point to Jesus. And we can see now 
understanding that, I have no idea where I am. <laughs> I got where, there you, um, but see that verse 11. Now this makes sense. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist because no one has more clearly pointed to Jesus than John the Baptist, who is both a prophet and the fulfillment of prophecy. That's what makes him the greatest prophet of all time, the go to the prophets. It's all about pointing to Jesus because he is the ultimate cure for all our pain and our anguish and our doubt. He is the cure. And then Jesus calls us into the picture. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I mean, that's hard to imagine. The least of Christians now, the least of us is in some way greater than John the Baptist. How is that? Because all of us now more clearly point to Jesus. We know more about Jesus than John the Baptist did in his whole life. So somehow the least of us is greater in our ability to point people to Jesus than even John the Baptist. And it is kind of interesting to think like, okay, there is a least Christian in the world somewhere. You may be here. You may be watching online. I don't know who you are, but I imagine the least in, in the kingdom to have very little giftedness in communication. I think it's probably hard for that person to even keep a clear thought. I think this person probably struggles greatly with sin and maybe addiction. I am sure this person is riddled with anxiety and doubt. And somehow, whoever this person is, they are greater even than John the Baptist because he or she is more able to point people to Jesus Christ than he could. And just like John the Baptist, whoever the least in the kingdom is, Jesus not only identifies with that person, but then justifies that person and claims that to God the Father and one day to the entirety of creation. And Jesus finishes by showing us as we go out into this world and desire to point others to him that we are going to be surrounded by unbelief. Verse 16 and 17. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So Jesus is pointing to these children's games that would be played in the, in the marketplace. And in one type of game, there was a, a flute played and, and the children were supposed to dance. In another type of game, that game, there's a dirge sung and the children were supposed to mourn. And, and what Jesus is saying is you're not playing by the rules. These, these children in the marketplace, they're calling out, we, we blew the flute, but you didn't, you didn't dance. The dirge was sung, but you didn't mourn. You're not playing by the rules. You can't hear the rules. You can't understand the ways that the world is designed to work. And so he's taking those children and then he applies this principle to both Jesus and John in verse 18 and 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. 
So Jesus is talking about unbelief, and I think primarily the unbelief of the religious leaders and Pharisees, but he has to have the unbelief of the Roman authorities in mind who have imprisoned John. And he's saying wherever they are, you can't please them. They're not going to accept it either way. I mean, look, they did. John came. John didn't drink. He fasted. He, he lived out in the wilderness. And they look at that and they think, that's too strict. I don't want that. He's got a demon. But then Jesus does the opposite. Jesus did drink, he did eat. He hung out with people that the Pharisees had made laws that you couldn't hang out with. Acts 10, people from other nations, the word is ethnos. You weren't allowed to hang out with other ethnic groups. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And they're always going to fall, find a way to disagree. They look at Jesus and they say, glutton. They say, drunkard. They say, you're a friend of sinners. One commentator said, It's as if Jesus is saying, you hate the preaching of repentance. You hate the proclamation of the gospel. So you play your childish games with God's messenger while Rome burns. Is this not the same culture that we live in today? I mean, just think about how they denied John. Oh, his his, his teachings are too strict. Well, Do we not hear that about a lot of our biblical teachings today? I mean, the Bible teaches that sex is designed to be enjoyed between one woman and one man in the covenant of marriage. People look at it and say, oh, that's way too strict. I can't do that. And they look at the way that that we teach on money. Money is not to be hoarded and enjoyed for yourself. Money is to be given away. I was with a man earlier this week who's talking about giving away 90% of his income and living on 10. That's not the way the world sees their view of money. There, there's another man uh, who is significantly funding, his family is significantly funding our pastoral uh, residency program. He is a billionaire who is determined to give away all of his money by 2030. That's not how the world views money. And so they, they view these kinds of teachings, as, just like John, that's, that's too strict. I can't do that. I reject that. And then you have on the other side, you have the, the snooty type, the, the and you, tend to find this, I think, more inside the church, this overly religious, uh, condescending type that feels uncomfortable when, when people who they think are beneath them are allowed into their social circles. I really love Angela's home church. <laughs> I love the people in that church. They have, they have blessed us in so many ways. They've prayed for us. They've supported us when we need it the most. There are some, some, sweet, sweet, sweet believers at her home church in Mississippi. I was married there. I was ordained there. I am deeply grateful, but no church is perfect. When she was in high school, her youth minister brought a black boy into the church and he entered into the choir. And in short time, he was on stage with the choir singing to the church and people in that church were calling for that youth minister's head because this was not a church for that person. Those people are beneath them. That's exactly what the Pharisees are saying about Jesus. You hang out with all these people, they're beneath us. You can't be a friend of people that we don't think belong in our social class. They don't like John's teaching because it's too strict. They don't like Jesus's teaching because it's too loose. That's the kind of unbelief that we're going to experience if we desire as all of us greater even than John the Baptist and pointing other people to Jesus. Jesus confirms and vindicates us in the very last part of this passage. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So uh, you may know, if you know 
how wisdom is dealt with in the Old Testament, why it says her. Wisdom is often personified as a beautiful, glorious woman. Proverbs 31, you know, it's actually not primarily about how to be a good wife. It's primarily about how beautiful wisdom is. Wisdom means in the Old Testament is usually talking about right living. And Jesus is saying that God's wisdom in God's wisdom has been justified, justified. It has been vindicated. Jesus and John the Baptist have been criticized. They've been rejected for the way that they live and they are both vindicated. Jesus says, if you are willing to accept it. Jesus is vindicated by his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And John the Baptist is vindicated by his belief in Jesus Christ. And the reception of Christ's righteousness in John the Baptist's being that allows him to enter the kingdom of God. The ultimate cure for everything wrong in the world, including doubt, is that we will be vindicated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we will be accepted into the kingdom of God for eternity. And this, again, might be a slow road for many people. You may never see the fullness of that healing in this life, but you will get it eventually. Either when you go to be with Jesus or he comes back, he is inviting us to hear that we are loved by Jesus. We are claimed by Jesus, even in our doubts, and we are justified and protected by Jesus. So if you feel opposed at every turn, so did Jesus. If you feel like life is just a prison right now, I think you get something about where John is coming from. And maybe there's somebody who's never wrestled with doubt out there. That's just hard for me to imagine though. I've wrestled with doubt. I think it's just a part of living in a fallen world and not understanding everything there is about, about the natural and the supernatural. But what makes sense to me is the greater the gift, the harder it is to really believe. And there's something about us when, when the gift is too good and too easy, our instant reaction is it's gotta be too good to be true. And so why would that not be true of the greatest gift that humanity has ever been bestowed with, lavished with God's love for eternity and all that's required as we believe? It makes sense that we would have this natural reaction, that's too good to be true. Because we are a bankrupt people who can't believe the fortune that a billionaire has, has declared that we would inherit. We're, a, we're starving people. And we can't believe the feast that is being given to us. We're a sick people and we can't even trust the vaccine. There's risk when we don't know everything. There always is. But, but think about the, uh, the risk reward in this proposition. If we're wrong, the worst case is that you lose a life that's already wasting away. If we're right, the best case is that you gain life from Jesus himself. What Jesus wants for you to experience in your doubt, in my doubt, is not guilt and condemnation. He offers us rest. He wants to give us rest. And he wants us to see that that doubt is robbing us of that rest. And he's saying, come, all you who are weary, I will give you rest. That's the promise. We go to Jesus with our anguish and our pain and our doubt. And he will accept us in the same loving, pastoral, fatherly way 
as he did John the Baptist. Let's pray. The gift you offer us, it really seems too good to be true. But it is true. And so God, we, we praise you for that. And we pray that you would help us to see that it really is true. That you would walk with us in our doubts and help us to feel very comfortable about communicating that to other people and most of all to you with a deep sense that you will walk on this long journey with us. God, I I feel confident in saying that all believers here in this room, we doubt. There are things that we doubt and we, we pray today that you would minister to us deeply in that doubt, that you would give us confidence in that doubt, and that you would send us out to more fruitfully point other people to you, even in the middle of the greatest doubt. We love you, we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.